If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. We're going to be looking at Luke 23. Uh, we've continued to make our way through Luke's Gospel, and we've, we've lived out, over the last few weeks, we've lived what we just sang as our Lord was nailed to the cross and condemned to die. And just as a reminder from a few weeks ago, His first words from the cross were a cry for forgiveness for those who are mocking Him those who were putting him to death. And last week, we saw that prayer already being answered as one of the two thieves upon the cross who just a matter of hours ago had been mocking Jesus was converted. He was brought to saving faith in those last moments before his death. So we saw the first words of Jesus from the cross. This morning we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding our Lord's last words from the cross. And as I read the text, there's a couple of things I want you to look out for uh, as we read in just a moment. First, I want you to understand that when Luke records these supernatural things, these supernatural phenomena of darkness and the curtain and the temple being torn— When Matthew tells us about other events that took place like earthquakes and even dead being raised, they do so as historians. They are telling us about events that happened on earth almost 2,000 years ago. Now, there's no earthly explanation for these things, but they're events, supernatural events that are bearing witness to the significance of Christ being on the cross. Second, I want you to see where our Lord's heart and mind goes when He's in this moment of excruciating pain just before He dies. He goes to the Scriptures. In in verse 46, when Jesus commits His Spirit to God, He's actually quoting Psalm 31, and He's applying it to His own life. Christ loved the Word so much so that it was on His lips with His dying breath. And then third, I want you to see the response of this Roman centurion and the crowd. This was not their first rodeo. The centurion had probably crucified hundreds of people. The crowds have seen this before. This was a spectacle in their day. This was entertainment in their day. But what's clear from this text is that what they saw, what they experienced upon the cross, deeply affected them, and some of them were utterly transformed by it. Through all these things, Luke is helping us to understand the cosmic significance of the cross, that the cross is not just a significant event for Jesus and a few of his followers and his followers throughout the ages and for us today. This is the most cosmically significant event in the history of existence. And that's what Luke wants us to understand, and that's what I hope you'll understand today. So I want to pray for God's help. Lord, this is your word. We ask that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things in it, and we ask that by your Spirit you would apply these truths to our hearts so that we would understand the significance of the gospel, that this is the most important event in the history of the world, and therefore it must be the most important event in our lives, and that we would understand from this passage how to live and to die in hope, in trust, in faith in Christ. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 23, 
We're starting at verse 44. Listen now to the reading of God's Word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. One or two of you may have noticed that we've been moving fairly slowly through Luke's gospel. In fact, I've even heard a joke or two about it over the last couple of years. We've been in Luke's gospel since Christmas of 2017. Now, there's a lot that I don't do right as a pastor, but I started Luke at Christmas, and we're going to get to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. That's a big deal. And it would have been possible at the pace I've been going actually to turn these six verses into four sermons. I really think there are four sermons here. You've got the the sermon that creation preaches with darkness. You've got the sermon of the torn curtain. You've got the sermon of Christ's final words from the cross. And you've got the sermon of the centurion's first words after his conversion. But I am trying to move at a pace that gives you a sense of the weight of these moments as we draw closer to Resurrection Sunday. And Lord willing, we'll come to the beginning of Luke 24 on Easter morning. But what I want to do this morning is to look at these four sermons that are preached here. Creation's sermon, the Curtain's sermon, Christ's sermon, and the Centurion's sermon. We're going to work through each of those, and at the core of it all, Luke is teaching us this cosmic significance of the cross that even creation understands the significance of what's going on when Jesus hung upon the cross and committed his soul to his Father. So let's start there, Creation's sermon. Look with me at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. This is creation's sermon. This is creation's, in a sense, testimony to Jesus' death. You know, we're told throughout Scripture that creation is a preacher. Look with me at Psalm 19 for a moment. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 456. But Psalm 19, the psalmist says there in verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In other words, that's preaching language. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This is creation's highest privilege to proclaim the glory of God. 
And so the psalmist says there in verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. In other words, these are not audible words. You don't walk outside and hear the trees saying, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. But by their very existence, they proclaim his glory. They proclaim that there is an all-wise, sovereign God who has set every molecule into existence. It's anthropomorphic to say this, but the creation rejoices to proclaim the glory of God. But I can tell you that as a preacher, the hardest part of being a preacher is the grief of wondering, are people really listening? Look with me at Romans 1 for a moment. Romans 1, Paul picks up on this idea that nature, that creation is preaching, that creation proclaims the glory of God. But he says, you know what's happened? Because of sin, man is deaf to hear that proclamation. So look at Romans 1, verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What he's saying there is man sees the order of creation but sticks his fingers in his ears and says it all got here by chance. It all got here by coincidence. Or maybe man creates some false god and he says my god that I made is the one that made this world. Paul goes on, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Sometimes people will ask, you know, what about people on the other side of the world who've never heard the gospel? Does God just let them into heaven because they haven't rejected Christ? You know, if that was the case, that God just lets them in, then the best thing we could do is just stop proclaiming the gospel and everybody would go to heaven by that logic. What Paul's saying here is they have all heard, they have all seen, and they are all without excuse. And so like a preacher whose people will not listen, we're told that the creation groans. Turn over just a few pages. Look at Romans 8. It was heartbreaking this week. I was doing research on this passage, and I came across a sermon preached in some liberal church, and it was talking about the creation groaning because of pollution, because we haven't been good stewards of the environment. It's not what Paul's talking about here. Look at Romans 8, starting at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's creation's disposition. It's been waiting for its creator and Lord. The one 
by whom it was created and for whom it was created. They've been waiting for him to bring redemption into the world, and it's in this moment that creation is preaching this sermon, this wordless sermon. As the earth goes dark, Luke tells us, It's creation sermon. You know, the Roman world had 24-hour days just like ours, but they marked them actually in maybe a more logical way than than us. They divided it into night and day, and and, and the day started somewhere around 6 a.m., around sunrise, and the day ended at sunset. And so when it says that it became dark at the sixth hour, it's talking about noon. It's, It's talking about midday. There's several... Other things that happened during this time from noon until what Luke calls the ninth hour, that three-hour window from noon to three. But Luke sets aside those things. He knows Matthew and Mark have already written about them, and he wants to fix our attention on this one event, this darkness. He tells us in verse 45, the sun's light failed. It's interesting, that word failed in the Greek is eklepo. It's, it's related to our word eclipse. And so it, some people have said throughout time, well, maybe there was just a solar eclipse. Now, here's what's really neat, and it's clear that's not what Luke's telling us, but what's really neat is it couldn't have been a solar eclipse because solar eclipses only happened during the new moon. But we know that the Passover took place during the full moon. And by the way, did you know the date of Easter is determined by the full moon as well? That's why, why Easter is a, a traveling holiday. It's always the first Sunday after the first full moon following the spring equinox. It's Passover. There's a full moon at night, so it's not an eclipse during the day, which means there is no earthly explanation for this phenomenon. But there is deep significance to this event, to what God is preaching to us through creation. What does the darkness mean? What's the point of creation's sermon? Darkness in Scripture is symbolic of judgment. And as creation goes dark here, it's proclaiming to us what's going on within the soul of Jesus Christ as He's absorbing the just judgment of God against our sins upon the cross. There's a lot of evidence in Scripture that we could go to to see that, that darkness is a sign of judgment. Just think of, of, uh, uh, of God's judgment on Egypt in, in Exodus the plagues, the plague of darkness. Just think of Jesus talking about a man being sent, in, or Jesus describing hell as a place of outer darkness. One of the things I hope you've seen in our, last, our study of those, these last moments of Jesus' life is that almost everything that happened was a fulfillment of prophecy. So look with me at the book of Amos for a minute. If you're using the Bible on your row, it's on page 770. I want you to understand what's happening here, that this is an event prophesied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ's crucifixion. Listen to Amos 8, starting at verse 7. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. In other words, that is talking about judgment. Judgment will come. He says, shall not the land tremble on this account? By the way, what did Matthew say happened As Christ hung on the cross, there was an earthquake. The land trembled. 
And it says, everyone, who, uh, everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It's a prophecy about this event. Verse 10, I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lament. You remember what the people were in Jerusalem for? They were there for the, fa- the Passover feast, weren't they? But they leave beating their chest and mourning. Why? Look, look, go on. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. That's language of mourning. And I will make it like the mourning of an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Amos is talking about the the judgment of God. But the judgment of God has come in such an unexpected way. The darkness isn't falling on God's people like it should. The judgment isn't falling on God's people like it should. It's falling on God's Son. Amos says, I'll make it like the mourning for an only son. And what Amos may not have even understood is that it was talking about God's only son. And in a sense, what we see the creation doing here as it goes dark is it's mourning the death of the creator. Thomas Manton, Puritan, said, The sun seems to be struck blind with astonishment, and all creation seems to have put on sackcloth and ashes, for they cannot show their glory while the Creator suffers. Darkness came as a sign that judgment had come, but it was falling into the heart of Christ. It was being absorbed in the heart of Christ so that He, as a substitute for me, for his people all throughout the ages. As a substitute for us, he suffered the most intense agony and terrible isolation ever known to man. Listen to R.C. Sproul on this. He says, I've heard many sermons about the nails and the thorns. Granted, the physical agony of crucifixion is a ghastly thing, but thousands of people have died on crosses. But only one received the full measure of the curse of God while on the cross. Because of that, I wonder whether Jesus, Sproul says, was even aware of the nail and thorns. He was overwhelmed by outer darkness. On the cross, he was in hell, totally bereft of the grace and presence of God, utterly separated from all blessedness of the Father. He became a curse for us so that one day we will be able to see the face of God. God turned his back on his son so that the light of his countenance will fall on us. And it's no wonder, Sproul says, it's no wonder Jesus screamed from the depths of his soul. So that's creation's sermon. The second sermon we're told about here is in verse 45. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. What's the What's the temple? What's the curtain preaching to us? What's this piece of furniture, this piece of upholstery have to say to us today? We've got to understand something about the temple. The temple was a, a really magnificent structure, and uh, just about every square inch of the temple had spiritual symbolism. But perhaps the most substantial symbolism about the temple 
was the layout of it. It was laid out into concentric courts. And so the furthest court was the court of the Gentiles. Only, uh, that's the only place Gentiles could go. They could go in that court, but they could go no further. Well, the next court in was the court of women. So the women could go in there, but they could go no further. And then the next court was the court of the Jewish men. But they could go no further. And the next court was the court of the priests. But even there was a limit to where the priests could go because there was a holy of holies, a most holy place. And in that place, the priests could go only one time a year to make a sacrifice for the people. And what separated the most holy place from the holy place, from the the court of the priests, was a thick curtain. The curtain itself was massive, about 60 feet long, about 20 feet wide, about 20 feet high. It was several inches thick. It was as thick, we're told, as a human hand, according to rabbis. The thousands of square yards of fabric were so heavy that it required a large team of men to hang it in place. God had chosen the colors of the curtain purple for his majesty, white for his purity, and scarlet as a reminder that justice demands a sacrifice. There were cherubim monogrammed into it, just like the cherubim that God had placed at the gates of Eden, banning Adam and Eve from returning there. Once per year, the high priest would timidly fearfully enter in. He probably thought of men like Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, who were careless in their priestly duties, and he, they, they died for it. We're told that the priest would walk backwards as he went in, and he would sprinkle blood before every step, because he didn't want one step not to be covered with blood. And then he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat seven times to make atonement for his sins and seven times for the sins of the people. Jewish tradition says he even wore a a rope around his waist that had bells tied to it so that the people could hear if he was still alive in there and they could pull him out if he died in the presence of God. All of this was intended to paint a picture for the people, which is this, God is holy and unholy. Man cannot approach him casually. Unholy man cannot just walk into his presence. Those cherubim preached the same message as the cherubim had preached at Eden. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Those are the words of of Isaiah 59. In other words, the sermon that the curtain had preached for 1,400 years was this. Sinners are not welcome here in the presence of a holy God. But as Jesus absorbed the wrath of his Father upon the cross, the curtain's now torn in two. Well, maybe it was from the earthquake, right? Now, Matthew tells us explicitly it was torn in two from top to bottom. It wasn't anything man could have done. And it was such a thick curtain, it couldn't have happened by anything other than the hand of God. 
It's an amazing scene as the Son of God absorbs his Father's wrath for our sin. The Father, with great urgency, the first thing that he does as his Son absorbs the last drop of our sin was to tear the curtain in two. And now, instead of a curtain weighing thousands of pounds that screams, keep out, there now stands an opening that says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. This wasn't a small hole where only lesser offenders could come to God. It was ripped apart so that the chief of sinners could enter in. It was torn from top to bottom, showing us nothing that man could do could have done this. What man made religion and all the good deeds in the world could not do, God did through the death of his son. And the tear went all the way to the ground. He didn't tear it halfway so that we had to climb upwards. But it was torn to the ground, all the way to the bottom. Samuel Rutherford says he tore it so low that it was low enough for him to pick me up from the bottom of hell and bring me to himself. And because it was torn, rather than folded and put aside, the veil was ruined. It's permanently ripped apart, meaning that God's people can never again be separated from him. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 can say, what can separate us from the love of Christ? That veil's gone. Nothing can rebuild it. And because of this tear, instead of the curtain being a a sign saying, keep out, it became the world's largest welcome mat. This is why, beloved, you can enter into this place And you don't have to bring the blood of a sacrifice. You didn't have to bring a bull or a goat to enter in here. Because Christ, our great high priest, has paved the way for us to worship. That's the curtains sermon. Then we come to the third sermon in this text. This one's preached by Christ himself. His last earthly sermon before death. Look at verse 46. Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's really amazing that Luke says here he cried out in a loud voice. The the literal Greek would be phones mega, the root of our word megaphone. It's amazing he could speak at all. When you die of crucifixion, you die... Not from the nails, you die of asphyxia. You suffocate to death. And it's astonishing that Christ could shout in a loud voice. Now, I told you, Christ was quoting Psalm 31. But there's more than that going on here. There's more symbolism here. What our Lord's saying here by by crying out with a loud voice is this. It's not the Roman soldiers that determine the moment of my death. It's not the Jews that determine the moment of my death. It's not even the cross that determines the moment of my death. It's me who determines the moment of my death. That's what Jesus told uh, the disciples in John chapter 10. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. By saying, Father, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus is saying my work here is done. It's the same way of saying, it's a different way of saying what he said in John 19, that greatest word in Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. Jesus committed his soul because his work on the cross was done, justice has been paid. He's absorbed God's wrath. He's opened the way to God. 
When he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, I told you he's quoting Psalm 31. Look there with me if you would. Psalm 31, verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. That's what Jesus has quoted, but look here. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Why did Jesus not include that last part? Because he hasn't been redeemed. The Father didn't spare him that punishment. He was redeeming us. The Father did not spare his own son. Why? So that he could spare us the punishment that we deserve. That's been the irony of the crowds mocking here. You remember what the crowd's been saying? You know, if you're the Son of God, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, call upon Him to save you. But they were so wrong. If Christ had called upon the Father to save Him, He could not have saved us. We would still be dead in our sins. He didn't call upon the Father to save Him so that we could call upon Him to save us. We're told there were many that were deeply affected by this. The crowds returned home beating their breasts. The disciples and the women watched from a distance. They all knew something extraordinary had happened. They know they've just witnessed a great injustice. It's upon their conscience that they've got blood on their hands. They know the judgment was deserved, but that this man did nothing to deserve that judgment. They did. I suspect some of them may have been among the crowds of thousands that were in Jerusalem a few weeks later at Pentecost. But right now, most of them are overwhelmed with grief, and it doesn't appear that they get it. But we're told here, one man really did, and this is the final thing, the final sermon here. Just after Christ preaches his final sermon, we see here the centurion's first sermon. Now, the word for centurion in Greek was hecatontarches, uh, excuse me. It literally means a man who is over, who is in, in charge of a hundred men. Presumably, this is the man who had been tasked by Pilate to accompany Jesus up and down the roads of Jerusalem, outside of the city, up to Golgotha, and to the cross. And he's been watching the whole thing. And look what he says in verse 47. Certainly, this man was innocent. I mean, people have already told us that. Pilate declared Jesus innocent. Herod found no guilt in him. The thief on the cross declared him innocent. Even Judas realized he was innocent. And now the centurion. Do you think Luke wants us to realize something? Luke wants us to understand through the eyes of these men who had their feet firmly planted on the ground, men who heard and saw the events about which we are to believe, they each proclaimed the innocence of Jesus. We're getting a testimony here of the truthfulness of Jesus' work from, of all people, this Gentile man who was responsible for putting Jesus to death. Of all people, this man seems to be the first person who understands the cosmic significance of what just happened in his sight. This man was one of those who had crucified Jesus. He had been one of those who organized the crucifixion. But in seeing it all, he has become convinced that Jesus 
took a punishment he did not deserve. You don't have to be a theologian to see the question that we need to ask here. If Jesus didn't die for his own sins, whose sins did he die for? The answer is this. He died for my sins. His cross was my cross. The centurion seems to understand that. This man didn't deserve it. And like the the thief that we met last week, there was so much this man didn't know. But he knew what he needed to know, that Christ Jesus had died for our sins. And what did he do? Look at verse 47. He praised God. When Luke began the gospel, we met a man named Simeon who told Joseph and Mary in the temple that their little boy would be a light for the Gentiles. Along the way, we've seen glimpses of that as Jesus was showered with gifts from the wise men from the east. As he engaged with the Syrophoenician woman, as, as the Greeks, this group of Greeks came to him saying, we wish to see Jesus. But now, Jesus has truly become the light to the Gentiles. As his still warm body is there on the cross, this Gentile man preaches to us that Jesus is blameless and holy and worthy of our praise. So let's bring it all together. These four sermons, they all tell the same story. The darkness preaches to us that the judgment of God has been satisfied in in and by Christ. The torn curtain tells us that the way to God is open. Christ's final words tell us that his work is done. What do the centurion's words tell us? that the gospel is available to all. That nobody is too far gone. This was a Gentile man responsible for killing Jesus. Just a couple hours ago, he was barking out orders. You hold the nails. You lift this cross up on his shoulders. Now he believes. This is a glorious picture of the gospel. That nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody's past makes them off limits to Christ. Jesus means it when he says, come to me all. All who've made a train wreck of their life. All who've been hypocrites. All who have sinned so much that nobody in this world wants anything to do with you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We come by faith. We receive the gift by faith. It's a simple faith. It's a simple faith that this man is innocent, so why did he die? He died for my sins. It's true faith given to us by God. And it is that faith that will bring us to God in the end. How do we apply this text? First off, you, if you're a believer, like the centurion, you have a sermon to preach. 
You have a truth to proclaim. How hard was it for this centurion to do this in front of his men and in front of the chief priests? His sin, his hypocrisy was on full display that he was the one responsible for carrying out these crucifixion orders. And yet he proclaimed the gospel. True faith works itself out not just in our hearts, but in our lips. Are you a believer? Then tell people about Jesus. <coughs> tell people the gospel. This man had much to lose, and he spoke the truth of Christ because it was true. Beloved, I don't know what you have to lose, but I know that if you are a Christian, you have every obligation upon you to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Well, who do I preach to? Do you have neighbors? Do you have unbelieving family members? Do you have coworkers? You have a mission field that is ripe. Now it's time for you to proclaim the gospel. Second, God says so much to us in this text, but we must do our duty to be hearers of the word. I mentioned that the hardest part of being a preacher is knowing that some people will walk out of here and it will have had no impact on them whatsoever. And I know I can't change hearts, but it's devastating. You know, Pastor Walton and myself spend anywhere between 20 and 40 hours on a sermon. And we we bring a sermon based on what we believe this text has to say to this church. Are you a hearer of the word? I think oftentimes we, we treat the ministry of the Word like when we go out to dinner. The cooks do all the work, we enjoy it for a few minutes, and then it's over. If it's really good, we may give our compliments to the chef. God has called you to be a hearer, to be a listener. So come ready to listen, ready for the truth of His Word to take root in your soul. That starts even before you set foot in this room. That's why we send out the text. Every Thursday, you know the text. And if you don't get that email on Thursday, you know what I'm going to preach anyways. It's the next thing in order. I'm not that creative. Study before you get here. Take notes as you listen. Be like the Bereans who searched the Scriptures in Acts 17. They were more noble than the others because they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were so. Talk about the sermon after the service. Go home and discuss what you learned. And then put the sermon to work in your life all week. You know, if you truly listen, every sermon becomes life-changing because it is the power of the Word of God which is living and active. Final application. It's interesting here. Christ teaches us how to die, doesn't he? 
Christ dies with absolute confidence here. It's very interesting to me that he takes Psalm 31, which says, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he adds Father to it. He dies with the confidence that when he closes his eyelids, he will see his Father. He died at peace because he knew the goodness of his God. This shows the manner in which Christians ought to die. We have here an example that every believer should follow. We, we should regard death as an enemy that's been defeated, whose sting has been taken away because it was injected into Christ and it cannot sting twice. We should think of death as a foe who can hurt the body for a time, but after that has nothing more that it can do. J.C. Ryle says we should await death's approach with calmness and patience and believe that when our flesh fails, our soul will be in good keeping. That's how the Christian is to die. You see that in Acts chapter 7 as Stephen dies and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 1 says, I know whom I've believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Christian, we have no right or reason to fear death. So let us stand boldly and unafraid in the face of death, knowing the goodness of our God, that Christ Jesus has borne our judgment, that the veil has been torn, and because of that, neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come nor anything else can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you for this word. We praise you not only for how Jesus conquered death, but how he conquered our death, how he took our judgment. He opened our way so that when we close our eyes, we will see our heavenly Father. 